0: How Leaders Lead. I'm Kula Callahan, here to bring you another edition of Three More Questions with David Novak. David, it's always such a treat to do this show with you. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great, and I'm really looking forward to talking about our conversation we had with Kevin Warsh. He's he's one of the smartest guys I know, and uh, it was really fun having that conversation with him.
0: I'm pretty sure my IQ just slowly increased as I listened to the conversation you had with Kevin Warsh. But what I love so much about What you talked about with him is that he really is committed to learning from other people. You ask him what's made him so successful, and he really credits the leaders that he surrounded himself with for a lot of his success. And he's somebody who's always learning and always growing, which is, you know, what we preach at How Leaders Lead. And so this conversation is no different. If you haven't listened to it and you're interested in how the economy in our country works, highly recommend listening to the conversation. So if you haven't done that, definitely go back in the feed and give it a listen. Today though, I'm going to put you on the hot seat, David. I'm not going to ask you about economic policy. However, (laughs) I am going to grill you with some questions about your conversation with Kevin. So let's get going. All right. Question number one, I'm going to play a little clip from Kevin and then I have a question for you about it.
1: You know, during my career, there's nothing but borrowed valor from bosses that I had up and down the ranks. You know, I, I I've been most lucky, mostly serendipity, to be exposed to great leaders. And you know, my my experience is you see leaders around you, and they have qualities that that are qualities you admire. You steal from them. You borrow. You know, this is all an apprenticeship business that, that we're leading, whether it be in banking or in government or anything else. And see, when you see qualities, you try to imitate them, make them your own, try to follow good behaviors.
0: In your career, David, which leaders have been instrumental to your growth and development and what did each of them teach you?
1: Well, you know, cool. one of the great blessings I had in my life is everybody I worked for ended up being a CEO of a company or a functional leader, but they were absolutely tremendous leaders, so I was able to learn a lot from each one of them. You know, early on in my advertising agency days, I worked for this guy named Howard Davis, who was the president of the agency, and, uh, you know, I was always a very competitive and passionate person, but I didn't necessarily have a tough edge to me. And Howard taught me how to be tough when I needed to be tough. It was just something I needed to learn. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying you're tough for tough sake. You, you just need to, to be tough minded. And, and he really taught me that, which was very important. Then I had the opportunity to, to work for Steve Reinemann, who was the president of Pete's Hut, and went on to be the chairman of PepsiCo. And Steve taught me just how important it is to to believe in your people. You know, Steve told me I was going to become a CEO of a public company someday before I even know what a CEO did. You know, he just really believed in me. and, And I think that belief really helped me believe in myself, which was very important. And the other person I just have to point out is Andy Pearson. Andy Pearson uh, co-founded Young Brands with me. He was my best friend when he passed away at 80 years old. And what Andy taught me was just the importance of being an avid learner, you know, being someone who just constantly seeks knowledge wherever it can be. And Andy was a great example of that because you know, he, he read three papers a day, read books all the time, articles and magazines would forward me all this information. Plus, he opened up doors with a lot of the people that he knew that I could learn from. You know, everybody from Ken Langone to, to Jack Welch uh, to Larry Bossidy. These are all people that I met through, through Andy. And, you know, that knack of, of being an avid learner is what kept Andy so young. For throughout his life, you know, when he was 80, he was the youngest guy I knew because he, you know, he has grandkids. He would be talking to them about J-Lo and A-Rod. <laughs> and, you know, he was just a cool guy. But, you know, I, all of the people that I work for taught me something that was uh, very instrumental in, in my career and in my life.
0: It's hard to imagine David Novak without that tough competitive edge because ever since I've known you, you've always had it. But I mean, to your point and to Kevin's point, it's what we learn from other leaders that really allows us to come into our truest version of ourselves and how we lead.
1: Along those lines, cool. I was, I was a nice person, okay? A nice <laughs> guy. It was just hard for me to, to necessarily take on the big conflicts. But after working with Howard, I, I actually think that that became a strength of mine and is something that I do now. But it, it, it doesn't come to me naturally.
0: That's so funny you say that. I am naturally conflict averse, but learned several years ago that if you want to be seen as a leader and if you want to lead other people, you just have to get good at conflict. So I, too, had some great people in my life who taught me to get comfortable with that and help me realize that it's a true asset to have. All right, question number two. You asked Kevin if he'd ever shifted his opinion on a decision or policy he'd put in place and what it took for him to actually do that. For you, David, has there been a time when you've had so much conviction about a decision that you've made only to later rethink it?
1: Early on when when Yum Brands was spun off from, from PepsiCo, one of the big strategies we had was to take advantage of the fact that we had three brands, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. And in new units and in some restaurants, we felt that we could combine two brands and put them into one restaurant. The customer loved this idea. They loved the fact that they could go into a restaurant and get both Taco Bell and, and, and KFC. And they loved the idea so much, You know, we went out and bought A&W and, and Long John Silver to give us, get us into the hamburger business and, and the fish business. And again, you know, when we put two brands under one roof, the customer loved the variety and they loved the fact that they could get branded variety. And, and I, was very, I very much believed in this strategy and thought it was the, the best way to go. But as we, we dug into it and, and got more experimentation, I realized that it wasn't going to be a, a big idea for our company. And the reason was, is that the franchisees did not want to do it. You know, Taco Bell franchisees love Taco Bell. KFC franchisees love KFC. Pizza Hut franchisees loved pizza. Hut. They didn't like the idea of, of putting another brand in their restaurants. So there was no way we could really scale it. And then A&W Hamburgers and, and Long John Silver just weren't as bigger brands as Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC didn't have as much popularity, so it really did not prove to be a a, a great acquisition. So I kind of had to eat some humble pie and and say, okay, this is not a strategy that's going to work for us over the long term. We sold Long John Silver's and A&W and we stopped adding KFCs and Pizza Hut and Taco Bells into each other's concepts. And you know, the consumer loved it. The consumer loved the idea, but we couldn't really execute it because we couldn't get the people that needed to make it happen behind it. And also, I learned that we did a very poor job of making the operation simple enough where people could add the complexity to get the extra volume. These are all things I learned that went into the decision to to pull out and uh, just focus on our individual brands.
0: For someone who does have that tough competitive edge, was it difficult for you to communicate to the team, hey, we thought we're going to go in this direction and now we're switching gears?
1: Absolutely. It's very difficult to deal with the fact that you make such a big mistake. And this is one of the bigger mistakes I made in my career. But I've always been a person that that has, you know, sort of acknowledged the fact that, hey, I've made a mistake, so let's address it and move on. And yeah, while it was painful, to to realize that I had been so wrong in something that I think could have a big impact in our company, and in fact, ended up wasting a lot of time, energy, and money in our company. That's painful, but I think I gained a lot of respect by saying to everybody, hey, let's move on.
0: You know, people really connect to those who admit their mistakes and course correct. And so while it is painful, I've had to do it too. It is a great way to continue to build trust and stay focused on your single biggest thing. So I love that story of the Long John Silvers, even though it's a painful one for you to reminisce on.
1: As you know, Kula, I I love teaching leadership and one of the things that I've learned from my leadership classes is that people love learning from your mistakes more than they do from your successes. You know, most times people really can, they understand how you got to where you are and and what your big achievements were, but they don't know how you stumbled along the way. So, you know, I, I think people kind of like to know that their leaders are human. And when you admit the fact that you you make mistakes and you deal with them head on and you, you move to a better solution, I think it does uh, help your esteem and credibility in any organization.
0: All right. Question number three. At age 35, Kevin became the youngest member of the Federal Reserve. And Since then, he's been very public about disagreeing with the Fed and how it's handled interest rates as of late. I mean, this is a guy who was part of the very organization that he's publicly criticizing, but he's done so because he feels so sure that they could be doing things better. David, I'm curious, in your experience, have you ever gone public about something controversial because you were so passionate about it? And if so, how did you go about doing it in a way that still showed respect?
1: Well, first of all, Kula, I, I was very hesitant to go public against uh, issues that did not relate specifically to uh, our our industry or or our company because I, I just didn't think that was appropriate. Because, you know, for me to come out, for example, and and you know recommend uh, voting this way or that way on an issue or a person. I think is not really appropriate because, you know, I don't want to influence people on on that front. That's their job and I don't want to put my company in a situation where, you know, I would have investors or customers be upset with me because I took a stand one way or another. Now, on the other hand, you know, I did address issues that affected our industry and I try to do them in a respectful fashion. For example, one thing that I I will tell you about the food service industry and retail in general is that the jobs that we have are maligned. You know, people say that they're just minimum wage jobs and uh, there's no way you can really build a career there or make enough money to support your family. And I thought that was really erroneous thinking based on a lot of facts you know, for example, very few people in our business work at the minimum wage for very long if they're good and they work hard. And, you know, I think in our country, it's it's not a meritocracy. You know, if you work hard, you make more money. And that happens in our industry. And you can move up the ladder in our industry very well. For example, if you uh, become a restaurant manager in our business, you could make $55,000 or more a year and the median income in the United States for household income, two people working is around $55,000. So that's a darn good job. And then if you work, you know, you're really good at uh, your business, running the restaurants, you can be an area coach and and manage five to seven restaurants. And then all of a sudden, you're making over $100,000. And plus, many of our franchisees started out at the lower levels in the restaurant business, worked their way up and ended up owning their own business and really achieving the American dream. So I really think that the the restaurant industry provides tremendous opportunities for thousands of people and thousands of people to have benefited and, and enhance their lives for themselves and their family because of it. But the main thing is to deal with this issue respectfully, I think you have to acknowledge where people are coming from. And you could say, for example, in this particular situation, I would say, well, I I hear your point of view. And I do think it's very difficult to to get by just with the, the minimum wage. But in our industry, if you're good, you don't make the minimum wage for very long. You move up the ladder and then you go forward and you can grow and grow and grow like I talked about.
0: David. Well, that wraps our episode for today. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of How Leaders Lead. We're on a mission to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And if you carve out a little time with us each and every week, we'll help you build the confidence you need to lead well.
1: And tune in Thursday as we dive into my conversation with Corey Robertson, the star of the hit television series and the business mind behind Duck Dynasty.